Welcome to Deharmonizing with your hosts, Josh Harlick and Andrew Mull. Two guys sitting around and breaking down all things pop culture. Hello, welcome to another episode of Deharmonizing. I am your co-host, Andrew Mull. And I am also your co-host, Josh Harlick. Hey, Josh. How are you doing, man? Awesome. Doing awesome. Really uh, hot Sunday here in Dallas, Texas. Really hot already. How was it? How was the drive back home from uh, Destin? It was It was rough, Andrew. <laughs> well, there was a lot of traffic from Destin going through, from Destin to uh, Baton Rouge, but then from Baton Rouge to back to Texas, it was really easy. So it was just that first half just terrible, terrible traffic. For those listening, we got a chance to spend a couple days at the beach. So it was a lot of fun. Did you have a lot of fun? It was awesome. Yeah, it was a good break from real work, real world. And nobody died on the boat trip. Nobody died on the boat trip. Yeah, could have happened, but it, but they didn't. So that was awesome. Josh got a new tattoo. How's that new tattoo doing? It's, it's healing pretty good. It's almost done. But uh, yeah, I did that, and then we rented that pontoon, and... Almost crashed into another boat. No big deal. Josh got a new tattoo the night before, so he had his arm wrapped up in bandages. And it wasn't until we got out on the water that he realized he it was going to be really hard not to get wet. So we ended up buying a massive watermelon raft. And you, you like, towed me. You to- <laughs> to- to- towed, <laughs> towed me to the other from- side of Crab Island. God, so everyone's just like, what is going on? These guys almost <laughs> crashed into us. That was pretty funny. but um, Yeah. Glad you made it back safely, and glad you're safe and sound and ready to record our next episode. And this episode, I don't know about you, but we talked about it a couple days ago. I am pretty excited about this one because this is one of those topics that you and I have talked about, uh, and that is what makes a great film soundtrack. Not so much film scores, not so much musicals, but just the songs themselves. One of the things that you and I were talking about the other day that I think really helped me sort of crystallize this whole thing is that it's not so much about quality because a bad quality soundtrack still delivers a high level of human happiness in certain certain cases. And I think some of these on this list probably fit that criteria. The music or the song really has to set the mood and really match the tone of the scene or the film, but it also has to take you back to that moment in the film. They have to match the characters. They have to kind of fit into the environment. Um, and that's not always a, the best song. So it just it's, Sometimes it's a different song. Simply put, the movie does the movie work as well without those songs? They accompany the film, but you don't necessarily think of that film when you hear the song. Forrest Gump is an amazing collection of hit songs from the 60s but i don't when i hear for what it's worth i don't think of forrest gump you know they they utilized it based on the time in which that story was taking place but is it like so important to forrest gump i mean could they have put another song in that place probably let's get into it the way we've structured this is we've each taken our top five soundtracks song tracks and we are going to match them head to head in a grudge match and we're going to each defend our own selection and then we're going to announce a winner 
for each round. The only other thing I'll say is that we didn't put any Beatles albums in this list because we felt like that would be way too easy. So, round one. The Karate Kid versus Rocky IV. So the way we're going to do this, Josh, is that your selection was Karate Kid, and I picked Rocky IV. So take a couple minutes to tell us why Karate Kid is on your list. This is going to be a tough round. It's a movie that has a lot of heart, and I mean, you can't go wrong with some of the songs that are on this soundtrack, and they definitely remind you of this movie. And let's start with You're the Best. <laughs> when you hear that song, and everybody knows it, they automatically know it's, it's for Karate Kid. It's not identified with any other movie. It's corny, but it's, you know, any kid growing up in the 80s would have you know, been inspired in some really corny way. That was what was great about the 80s. Well, remember we talked, this is a few episodes ago, we talked about how the 70s films always gave, left you with that sort of really kind of dark, gritty, uh -huh. almost yeah. guerrilla style filmmaking in some cases. Never had the Hollywood ending. It's almost like the 80s were a total overcorrection. I, I totally agree. I think there was also a lot of money. So you've got all these upbeat, overly happy, positive things going on. About You're the Best, tell us about what this, what this song was originally written for. It was originally intended to be the theme song for Rocky III, so instead of Eye of the Tiger, it would have been You're the Best, which definitely would have put a different spin on Rocky. Would Rocky III have been as great with You're the Best? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't either. I because, don't either. Because Eye of the Tiger has become so iconic, you know. And it was also supposed to be used for the movie Flashdance, and was replaced by Maniac. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Isn't that weird? How like when you're a, a songwriter for hire, a hired gun to write, like how songs can just bounce from production to production until it settles on. It's like there's so much behind the scenes that has to go on to make. To, to for that song to land where it finds its home like it's just weird you know in every episode that we've recorded i think to some degree we've always sort of created that web of oh this guy did that i think the, the true unsung hero of that soundtrack that really does a lot of the heavy lifting is young hearts by commuter yeah i love that song and and, and it, it, you have to overcome the lyrics because the lyrics are pretty bad. They sound like they were written probably in five minutes, and maybe they were. If not, there's a big problem. <laughs> okay, apart from Johnny running headfirst into Daniel Sun's crane kick, what's the most classic moment of the film? Here are your choices. Your choices are these. Miyagi saving Daniel on Halloween. Catching the fly with the chopsticks. Uh, the montage where Daniel is learning how to balance on the beach. Or Bananarama's cruel summer on Daniel's first day at the beginning. Which of those moments is, is maybe... Which of those moments are the most classic? Well, out of those moments, I, I would think just in the context of the film, the, with the excitement of the scene, certainly, I think the, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi saving Daniel. The, there's only one real hiccup and one real issue I have with this soundtrack, and I don't know whose fault it is, but the fact that Cruel Summer is not on this soundtrack, I think really hurts it. I don't know why that song was left off, but like, I love that song. All right, 
I know you've got some uh, hot opinions about Rocky IV, so we'll get right into Rocky IV. Look, I love this movie, but it's mostly montages that feel like it are being used to sell a soundtrack. Like, the movie comes to complete full stops about five times in this film, and it's usually when there's like a big music montage. And I'm thinking of the James Brown basically concert right before Apollo fights Drago. Um, the montage where Rocky drives after, you know, being told once again by Adrian that he can't win. That <laughs> <laughs> How many times is she not going to believe in him? I mean, God, I mean, he, he, won the la- he won against Clubber Lang. You didn't think he would do that. She didn't think he'd beat Apollo. She didn't think he was going to beat Clubber Lang. She didn't think he was going to beat Drago. Even if you win, what have you won? Apollo's still gone. Because I'm a fighter. That's the way I'm made, Adrian. That's what you married. It's suicide! You can't win! that no easy way out montage. I do love it because it cuts all four movies together, which is really cool. But it, it probably a better video maybe than maybe a five minute. Yeah, because it goes on a while, you know. He's driving that car for a while. They're like, man, we love we love the song so much, which it is a good song. It's It goes along with really, it kind of is head to head with You're the Best, honestly. I mean, yeah. it's the same exact subject matter. You know, trying to overcome obstacles or whatever. You know, there's no easy way out. There's no shortcut home or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's cheesy in the same way. And they knew, I guess they knew that it would sort of feel inspiring in that 80s way. Where no one, we weren't caught up to the fact that this was cheesy stuff. I think when we watched it, we were like, oh man, it's awesome. And yeah. now we're like, oh yeah, it was so corny. So yeah. corny. I mean, how many times does he shift his car into <laughs> another gear in that... <laughs> How many gears does this car have? I mean, I, do I'm Lamborghinis not... have 35 gears? I also don't think ever. I also don't think ever looks at the road. You know, Rocky Ford. You, you made a good point, and what we actually let's connect this to what we just said about the 80s having pumped in. There was everybody was doing well, and usually they define well as Wall Street's doing well, and Wall Street was doing very well before the crash. Um, and a lot of money was being made. So this movie, compared to the first Rocky. Is is a complete? It's actually a completely different goal, right? Because the first Rocky certainly, the movie had something to prove, and the character Rocky had something to prove. So it was very Sylvester Stallone certainly had something to prove. Very low key, right? And it was in the seventies, right? Just like we're talking about. So it had a little bit more of a he he didn't win, right? Towards the end. So we're this is where storytelling really was at its best. Where it's like we we don't care that he doesn't win because that's not the point of the movie. Now, fast forward to Rocky IV, and we've gotten into the 80s, we've gotten into the money, the Rocky character has money, the film has more money because it's a huge success, 
So look at what it produces, which is a film that is basically just like, we're just going to make people excited, Rocky's going to win, and everybody's going to go home happy. And they did. They did go home happy. And keep in mind also, this is MTV era, musical montages, basically music videos. Just because it's the MTV era doesn't mean you have to stick 10 music videos into your film, but this movie was really a casualty of that. Sometimes it works, and I think we're going to talk about a couple other movies on this list that that make that sort of concept work really well, but in this movie it really doesn't work. All right, so Karate Kid versus Rocky IV. Who gets knocked out in the 15th round of this one? I got to say, you know, even though I picked Karate Kid, I mean, if we're talking about knockouts, man, I think Rocky IV wins. I think, I think it, it has to. It has to. Yeah. Burning Heart. I, they, they did include Eye of the Tiger on the soundtrack, which I think really kind of puts mm-hmm. it over the top. Eye of the Tiger, Burning Heart, um, No Easy Way Out. When you and I were talking about this, you said this the other day. Uh, Living in America, which was a big hit, might actually be the worst song on the soundtrack. And I think you're right. That is just out of nowhere in the middle of Rocky IV, James Brown sings Living in America. <laughs> and I think names every city yeah. in the country. Detroit. For about... Detroit for about city. <laughs> Dallas. Dallas. I get what you're doing, James. All right, so let's move on to round two. So round one, I think you're right. I, let's score that for Rocky, Rocky Four. Definitely. Rocky Four wins that. Yeah. Round two. All right. This is going to be a fun one. Round two. Pulp Fiction versus Reservoir Dogs. And I tell you what, we'll go in chronological order since Reservoir Dogs came out about two or three years before Pulp Fiction. I'll talk about Reservoir Dogs first, if that's okay with it. you. As everyone knows, this was Quentin Tarantino's first film. One of the unusual features of the soundtrack, I think, was the choice of songs. It's a very violent movie, but the music is almost a counterpoint to all the violence. Here's my theory on why he went more softer, soft rock, 70s rock. My theory is that the violence in this movie is sometimes so brutal and that you could probably only watch this movie one time without having the, the, the songs in the background that help you really get through it. One of the themes throughout the film was this radio station that was playing a Super 70s weekend, K-Billy, um, K-B-L-Y. Quentin Tarantino made a very, did a very unique thing with the soundtrack where he actually included snippets of dialogue and sn- snippets of Stephen Wright, who plays the deadpan DJ, and sets up several songs on the soundtrack. So if you listen to the soundtrack from start to finish, it's a really cool experience. It's almost like an hour-long radio show in a way. I mean, it does it intersperses scenes from the movie within it, but which kind of get in the way of that a little bit. But I think I really like how he lays out the songs and cuts between the songs and uh, the DJ, much as the same way as hearing Weezer for the first time or even watching Pulp Fiction for the first time, or hearing Teen Spirit for the first time, this soundtrack, I think, really is one of my top moments of that decade. And I think the soundtrack really made movies, and, and soundtracks especially, a new level of cool. Quentin Tarantino had a weird ability to play, put songs on a soundtrack that really have nothing to do with the movie. You know, we were just talking about Karate Kid and Rocky, you know, Karate Kid has You're the Best, which is, you know, it's directly related to what's going on in the scene. 
And then you've got, you know, no easy way out directly related to what Rocky's doing. This is a completely new era where it's like, hey, none of these songs have to do with anything that's going on in these scenes. But, and, and, and you know, we talked about uh, Forrest Gump. They do the same thing. I mean, with the exception of it being the time frame, it doesn't really have anything to do with the scene. But for some reason, Quentin Tarantino has an odd ability to make it work where you, I, I guess because he handpicks these songs and they're not just based on, oh, well, it takes place in the 90s, so let's get some 90s tunes. It's actually like, you know, we really, I really have a very specific taste and the, the mood in the film matches this song completely. So that's why they're so interconnected. I think that's really interesting because you don't see that very often where if the song has nothing to do with the scene, do you really think of it when you hear it? Think of the movie. Put your filmmaker hat on for a second and talk about the Marvin Nash scene. You know, it's such a gruesome scene. It's like basically trying to, it makes it more gruesome because of the song. I think it makes it easier to watch. I think going the direction that Quentin Tarantino did, maybe it was out of necessity, but going the direction that he did with that really light pop song, I think helps you get through the scene. I, I think it would be a really difficult scene to watch otherwise. You kind of, it, it almost makes it, it almost kind of gives it a comedic element I wonder what his intention was, though, because it's hard to say. I mean, do you think he was really trying... I mean, anybody you know who writes a scene like that or just the what what's happening in the scene, it's gruesome no matter what. I right. mean, everyone's going to be like, ugh, I, I would hate for that to happen to anyone or myself. Right. So everyone, everyone thinks that right from the bat, but the way you take it, and the way he takes it, and the way another director might take it, what was, he, what was in t- his intention? I think it was to show how completely insane this guy is. Like, yeah. He, he's getting joy out of doing this. Ah, okay. Whereas the ah. audience member is like, I, it's like, it's kind of funny because it's like, you, it's a movie. So you, everybody knows they're safe. They know the guy in the movie's safe. They know you're safe. You're safe watching yeah. it. But you're still kind of horrified. But I guess it's to show how completely insane this guy is. Because like, he's dancing. He's dancing. <laughs> yeah. He's dancing. He's like, he's, he's enjoying this. So this sets up this guy's character. I hadn't thought about how it actually compliments the character itself because yeah mm-hmm. yeah he he sort of nonchalantly puts on the radio as he's mm-hmm. as he's mangling this is something he's done before yeah you is... get the feeling the fact that he has the fact that he has a straight razor blade in his sock or in his boot or whatever yeah. <laughs> sort of insinuates that this guy is pretty twisted and he's yeah he's probably done something like this before pretty creepy i always liked how the the song fades out as he walks out of the warehouse and goes to his car to get the gasoline and uh-huh. then goes back into the, and then it fades back in. Like it's a, it's such a throwaway kind of moment in a way, but I remember watching that for the first time, kind of getting the, the feeling that that I'd never seen that done before. Like in that kind of way, just, it just sort of added to the realism of the scene and realism of the movie. And, um, that movie, I, I don't watch it anymore. I, I've kind of, I, I probably watched it too many times. I owned it um, on VCR, v, or I owned it on VHS and probably wore it out. But, um, so I don't know if that's why I don't watch it anymore. Or I don't know if the reason why I don't watch it is because it's really kind of hard to watch. But um, I think the songs, and that song especially, helped me get through the movie more than once. <laughs> I, don't know yeah. I, I don't know if I would have watched it as many times as I did. Well, it's dialogue heavy, and since it's Quentin Tarantino's first, 
not first movie that he wrote probably, but the first movie he directed. Yeah. He it, it's he's experimenting. You know, in the beginning they they're talking about Madonna and like a mm-hmm. virgin. Yeah. Um, and that type of dialogue is something he expands on in Pulp Fiction, right? It's like there's so many scenes where the dialogue isn't actually driving the story. It's actually right. driving the characters, but not the yes. story. Yes. Um. So he's experimenting with that in Reservoir Dogs, but he doesn't actually expand on it. So my interest level almost wanes a little a little bit because yeah. they're actually talking about just r- real things and they're having a debate about who this who's the who's the rat you know and everything and it's not really Quentin Tarantino esque dialogue yet he's just yeah. kind of developing it still brilliant i mean i mean yeah. let's face it i mean i could never have come up with that and he basically created a whole subgenre of film for a while in the yes, 90s he did. And everybody was trying to imitate it Gosh, you know, can, it, I, can, oh God! All the copycat movies that came out after those it those got first... it got really bad. It got bad where I was like, I hate that type of dialogue. And to this I know. to this to this day, I have a, a little bit of a, like super sounds of the seventies. I reached up to number five. Oh. K Billy super sounds of the seventies continued. I think you and I could probably both agree the the biggest portion of the Pulp Fiction soundtrack is the surf music, which sort of enjoyed a really strong resurgence. Is that the word? Is that a word? Yeah, resurgence, renaissance. Yeah, yeah. because it had resurgence. you know it really wasn't anywhere any on anyone's top types of uh, music, and he used it in such a way that you know accompanied the film. That people, I guess it just started, you know, there's, I think there's even a compilation that came out. I can't remember what it's called. It's called like a Pulp Surf Music Volume yeah. 1 or something. Um, so they actually used the word because that's how popular it became because they wanted to capitalize on it. I was obsessed. I was obsessed about surf music. I, I was too. For, for about two years. Yeah, I was too. I mean, I, you know, I listened to that soundtrack over and over again. And I did think it was pretty amazing, and I still do. I mean, I, there's, yeah. there's, if on any soundtracks on this list or anything outside, is there any movie that compares to the, like, to what he's doing? You know, and I just, I can't think of anything yeah. that sounds like that. Um, and it's sort of in that same way, just like we were talking about. It's sort of the the same way that you loved it, you ended up hating it because you were like, oh my god, like that era, I can't deal with like the dialogue and what they were trying to do and. But it, for the moment, you know, when it came out, it was pretty brilliant, I thought. You know, you take a good thing and then you just destroy it, run it into the ground. Run it and, into um, the ground. Yeah, just like we're going to cut. And it's funny, too, because you would think in that time frame in the 90s that they would be protective of it, but they really weren't. It was the same as the 80s, which was Rocky 2, 3, 4, as much as it could be a success. And now they do it just with all the, the superhero movies and all that stuff. I mean, they... More than ever in modern day, I think they latch on to something that's a sure thing, and then they blow it out of the water. They just keep doing it and keep doing it until people yeah. are just like, sick but of this it. this soundtrack also introduced a whole new audience to Dusty Springfield. I didn't yeah. know 
Son of a Preacher Man was actually offered to Aretha Franklin. It was offered to her and she turned it down. And then and within a year, Aretha Franklin wanted it back. gonna say they also have a girl you'll be a woman soon by urge overkill whatever happened to urge overkill i don't know the only other i wasn't a huge fan of theirs or at least i didn't take the time to investigate their music the only other song i remember by them i believe it was called sister havana if i'm thinking correctly and that and uh it was a pretty decent rock song. I mean, it was a lot of bands like them. Not like them, but you know what I mean. It, 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 a lot of that type of music around. I think they always appeared on 120 Minutes all the time. Comparing the two soundtracks back-to-back, I think Pulp Fiction is the clear winner. Yeah, it packs a bigger punch, and if you want to talk about cultural impact, you know, Pulp Fiction, nine times out of ten, is going to be the one that comes up in conversation. Um, All right, so round three. So right now we have round one. We have Karate Kid versus Rocky. Four, we we gave it to Rocky. Round two, Pulp Fiction to Reservoir Dogs. We gave it to uh, Pulp Fiction. Round three is Back to the Future versus Rushmore. Josh, this was your pick, Back to the Future. So okay. tell me why, tell me why Back to the Future is on your list of favorite soundtracks. You know, I don't know if it's if it's actually as popular as I want to think it is. I think it has some hits on it. You know, you've got Back in Time and it even features like the Johnny B. Good song, not sung by Michael J. Fox. Um, yeah, Mark Campbell. Mark Campbell, yeah. It has Heaven is One Step Away by Eric Clapton. It has Time Bomb Town by Lindsey Buckingham, which is my favorite. I think it just, it, it, uh, there's enough original music on here to absolutely be associated with the movie and the fact that the movie is so iconic itself. Apart from Johnny Be Good and Earth Angel, every other song on there was made for the film, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, power. You didn't even mention Power of Love, did you? Power of Love, yeah. I mean, that's the the, the front runner off that whole album. Yeah. Probably. Did you know that was Huey Lewis's first number one hit? I would have thought he would have had something by now. Uh, by I that know. time, but I guess it not. was about a year after Sports. Sports came out in '84. Must have some tough competition. Boys of Summer came out that year. All the Purple Rain stuff. Madonna, um, Sports, Daryl Hall. I mean, Cyndi Lauper. 
Cars, uh, the Cars album, um, uh, Drive, you know, with You Might Think and Magic was on that, was that year. Van Halen, 1984 was that year. I mean, it's just, it's amazing everything that came out. Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It was 1984. Ghostbusters was 1984. And I guess that helped propel this movie to the top of the box office as well. You think so? I, I would imagine. I mean, just, you know... That that song, and obviously you've got Back in Time, and Huey Lewis is riding this huge wave. You know that definitely. You know in the '80s, I think they did a good job of matching those top bands. I mean, it's all commerce, but it's a good strategy, yeah. right? They've got a top band; they're already on top, and they're doing songs in a soundtrack. Well, then of course you're gonna be like, oh well. The song bleeds into the radio. You like the song, you go see the movie. Back to the Future is a sentimental favorite of mine. And actually, my brother, Matthew, is the one that actually bought this tape first. He had it before I did. I know you had it. You can't get any better from the 80s. I mean, that's it's top. It's top. Yeah, it, um, it actually was nominated. Power of Love was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Did not win. Um, album uh-huh. spent 19 weeks on the Billboard 200. Peaked at number 12 in 1985. My selection was a little known movie called Rushmore. And Rushmore, of course, Wes Anderson film, his first major motion picture. Well, I guess Bottle Rocket was before it, but was was Bottle Rocket independent or was that a major motion picture too? That had a theatrical release, didn't it? It did have a theatrical release, but that was when independent, many independent movies would go to the theater. I I think that's kind of died out a lot. Um, so, but yeah, and they made it independently and then I guess they had enough, uh, clout to go on to do Rushmore and Rushmore is an excellent film. I I love that movie. I remember, maybe this was in the director's commentary or maybe I read it in the liner notes somewhere, but I remember Wes Anderson saying that he originally wanted the soundtrack to be full of nothing but Kinks songs, which I don't know, like I could kind of, I could actually kind of see that working because a lot of the songs that he does choose are all that sort of early British invasion music. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I think he he went more towards the British invasion, but that's it. Sort of cat, it, it sprung yeah. from that idea. Because um, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think he could have pulled it off with the Kinks because he, Wes Anderson, is another director like Quentin Tarantino that can match songs. That even though the song itself isn't talking, isn't really explaining the film. Right. The mood is. The soundtrack becomes almost as important as the characters and Yeah, the what's story. your favorite song on the, on this one? I am I love cre- uh, the creation, Making Time. I love that. Scene. But there's so many good ones, so it's hard to choose because you've got the Kinks uh as mad as I can be. Yeah. That's such a Nothing good song. in the world. Nothing in the Nothing world, in the world can, can stop me losing. Yeah. Stop yeah. me worrying about that girl. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um and then you've got Here Comes My Baby by Cat Stevens. You know, we're ta- when we talk going to Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson, pretty much I guess the nineties era of independent filmmakers that kind of made a splash. You know, each decade it seems like it has its own um, system of how they use music in films because you know obviously decades change in a lot of different ways but if you think about the 80s soundtracks we're talking about think about the way they're using mu- music they're using it to pump up because they want you to get pumped up about the film and then you go into the 90s and you've got these guys who are basically kind of music and film nerds right they know everything yep. about 
music. They know everything about film. And when they merge the two together, they are much more strategic in the songs that they use. It has to be a specific mood that really capture and, and it can't be something that just kind of plays up the emotion so you'll walk out of there kind of fooled they they want you to really feel something we were talking before about how the 70s were really darker and then we talked about how the 80s overcorrected and, and and then the 90s would you say the 90s are almost a combination of the two different styles because it's like wes anderson and quentin tarantino the films that they were watching i don't know that those were 80s films i'm sure they did they were there were some but I, I bet you if you asked Quentin Tarantino who, his, who he was inspired by, I bet you'd get a little bit of a mixture of both and probably Wes Anderson too because they're, they're, you know, they're a few years older than we are. So I wonder if... I think you could even go further and say it's a merging of many different decades um, because, because you have these guys, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is another one, right? We've, we, uh, you know, if you want to talk about Boogie Nights, which is an excellent soundtrack, he also uses music it has to be very specific it doesn't have to be talking about what's happening in the scene like the 80s did but it has to truly give off a certain emotion i don't know what we have now but that era has kind of died out of like the auteur filmmaker it was an exciting time for film I, i really enjoyed going to the movies in the 90s all right so that sums up round three and I don't know, Josh, who wins round three? It's, it's a tough one, you know, because even though my the child in me is thinking back to the future all the way, Rushmore is during a period that film really started to truly mean something to me. And it wasn't just like a, a childhood happiness. It was like these this, these filmmakers make me want to think about stuff and create. I don't know. Like I think the soundtrack maybe is more emotive than Back to the Future. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I think you're right. And I'm going to have to say I think Rushmore... Knocks out Back to the Future if we're talking about pure soundtracks and how it affects the emotion. All right, so round four is going to be the toughest round to... I, I, not toughest in a bad way, but like I think it's going to be the most controversial. This is, this is A Clockwork Orange versus Goodfellas. And uh, once again, we'll, we will go in chronological order, which means Clockwork Orange is first... So, Josh, this was your choice. Tell me why Clockwork Orange is in your list. I still have to say A Clockwork Orange is my favorite film of all time. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I know a lot of people can disagree, and certainly it doesn't really... Sometimes people don't really get affected by it like I did. You know, imagine me. I think yeah. I was about in eighth grade, and I got it, and I just did not understand it. I was like, this is so weird. Like, what is this? Um, and then I watched it mm-hmm. again, and I watched it again, and I watched it again, and then I read the book, and I read the book again and again, and then I finally understood it. It's about a kid named Alex, and he's a terrible person, obviously, and they, uh, he finally gets caught because he commits you know, one of many crimes, and then they put him through this technique that is supposed to eradicate crime, but it actually, it's almost like cruel punishment, because even though he was a terrible person, now you're thinking, which one was is more terrible? Is it the way we treated him or was it the way he treated his victims? You know, and, and there's that's a whole other argument, but the music for that film, if we want to talk about the original person that can make music truly put off an emotion that he's trying to convey, it's that. And the perfect scene for that, a good example, is when the first scene you see Alex and his droogs he attacks that old couple and he starts singing, singing in the rain. 
Isn't it exactly like that Reservoir Dog scene? Right? It's the same exact point. It's basically... This guy's this guy's crazy. This guy he's it's seriously uh, Singing in the Rain is is a movie that makes people happy and this like bizarre crime is making this guy happy. So and it's it's just done and it's, certainly it's very 70s. It, I mean the movie is dated. I'll 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 certainly admit that. But along with that song and along with some of the other oddball songs the introduction I don't, you know, it's weird you say that it, it's dated. That movie doesn't feel dated to me. I don't know if it's the costume design or the sets or the dialogue or, but there's just something about it that doesn't feel, that doesn't feel dated to me. It feels. Uh, maybe because there's so many elements that are mixed together and it, and it was intended to be in the future. You know, I guess the way and it feels like in the it, late sixties and yeah. seventies thought of the future, you know, explain to me the connection between. The, the the classical music and, and Beethoven specifically and Alex. It's hard to really pinpoint what it what it means, but there is I guess a bizarre connection between um, I don't know the grandiose style of Beethoven and he connects it with this sort of euphoric feeling, um, especially when he's um, committing crimes and like causing trouble, I guess. Because they use um, they use Beethoven to condition him, right? Yeah, right. So he's he loves Beethoven. He wants connected that to this joyous feeling of um, he was almost evil in a way, if you if you can even describe it that way. And then when he's being conditioned, it, it, I think it was the Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. I think he said this came out after two thousand one, right? That's correct. Yeah, two thousand one. I, I think two thousand one was sixty nine. Mm-hmm. And I think Clockwork Orange was, I want to say, 71 or 72. Yeah, okay. I feel like it's 71. So Alex, there's a scene where Alex goes into that record store. Do you remember that scene? He's walking around, and he's basically just looking around at some of the records, and then he goes, he finds those two girls, and he ends up going having sex with them at his place. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that scene? So that is the Chelsea Drug Store. Do you recognize that name? The Rolling Stones song? Yeah, that was a very famous bar where bands like the Stones would go in and hang out. From You Can't Always Get What You Want. Yep. Do you know it's Chelsea Drugstore? Like, how does... Like, I know it because I've read it. Yeah. Because you read it. Right, yeah, right, right. It's Got hard it. to tell from watching They don't the talk movie. about it. Right, okay. Gotcha. That's really cool. How come Big Chill isn't on either one of our lists? I, you there. know, I almost had it on my list. Um, but the reason I shied away from it was because the film itself was not one that I had watched a bunch of times. You know, like it's yeah. not... You know, and so the... You know, let's face it, the, the, the soundtracks we chose are two films that we've seen a million times. And yeah. there's something about the marriage between the music and the film that really hits it off. And I think The Big Chill, I think it had a better soundtrack than a better movie. I almost had it on my list, too, and I'll tell you why I left it off. Because, well, first of all, Big Chill is associated with the rebirth of 60s music. I know, I know it made a big impact. From that aspect, it's... Certainly noteworthy, but I think it, it, maybe it's because I wasn't, I didn't live through it. But the reason why I didn't put it on the on my list is, first of all, I don't think you can't always get what you want is on the actual soundtrack. For starters, it's in the movie, of course, but it's not on the soundtrack. And secondly, a lot of the songs that are on the soundtrack are songs that I just can't listen to anymore. So, like the most mainstream. It, it's yeah, yeah good yeah. loving. Do you have anything else on nope. Clockwork? Okay. My selection is Goodfellas, and Goodfellas came out in 1990. Martin Scorsese, 
it's not just the best gangster movie all, of all time. I think it's one of the best movie period of all time, in my opinion. Um, and there are so many great music moments in Goodfellas. Um, in fact, you know, one of the best scenes in the film is from which you know we're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson when uh, when Henry Hill and his girlfriend Karen go into the Copacabana and they play um, uh, and then you know then he kissed me by the crystals and they do that one long to the kitchen uh, to the kit through the kitchen out into the out into the um, into the dining area and like it's just that one long steady cam shot for like three minutes. And um, you know, from start to finish, no cuts between it. The, the whole song plays. I just think that's just uh, you know, I love how Scorsese uses uses music in his films, and um, I've always loved it. I think what he does, at least for me, and, and Tarantino to, a, to maybe a slightly lesser degree, is that um, Scorsese makes certain scenes in certain movies just almost compulsively watchable over and over and over. I love how he uses Layla, the you know the, the, the piano exit. I don't know. He has an uncanny way of using familiar music, um, but making it sound like it's the first time you've ever heard it. If that makes any sense. At I all. agree, and I think he's a, probably obviously a huge influence on some of the other directors we've talked about. You can tell he's one of the earliest directors to truly care about rock and roll and pop music. Uh, right, yeah. very early. If you watch Mean Streets. He's got music in there mm-hmm. as if, and it seems like it's a it's a it's a modern movie, but it's not. It's early seventies, and then he yep. um, in Goodfellas, of course, is no exception. And he's sort of a rock and roll director. You know, he does a lot of like quick like movements with the camera, quick cuts, and some it's sometimes when he puts something together, and it's so brilliant in the way that he marries the two. Um, and he's definitely. You can tell he cares about every single choice, every single music choice, you know? Yes, it feels very, yes, a a lot of care and love and time goes into every selection. It just feels that way. So what do you think? I have to pick Goodfellas. Like, there's no way. And I know you probably have to pick Cock. So basically, it's it's that, it's it's the it's it's the draw. Rocky Three. It's got to pause just before we, (laughs) before they hit each other. All right. We are down to our last round, and the two movies left. So just to recap real quick, round one was Karate Kid versus Rocky IV. Rocky IV won. Uh, round two was Pulp Fiction versus Reservoir Dogs. Pulp Fiction won. Round three was Back to the Future versus Rushmore. Rushmore won. Round four was Clockwork Orange versus Goodfellas, and we had a split decision draw. We don't know who won that one. And round five is now Purple Rain versus Footloose. And since Footloose came out about five months before Purple Rain, we will start with Footloose. So, Josh? Quintessential 80s movie. Now, this, this, this guy, this town, they don't allow dancing. <laughs> and this, this story was based on a true story. The screenwriter, I guess, or someone uh, associated with the film... Um, heard of the story and so they you know wrote, wrote the story about it um, and it was very similar it was a small town and the preacher was mad and all that stuff same thing um, and so in the film um, music is absolutely key I mean we are talking about dancing so the soundtrack better be pretty good <laughs> fortunately the soundtrack is awesome the soundtrack is absolutely awesome 
right in the middle of the 80s and we're talking almost paradise we're talking i'm free kenny kenny loggins was on a roll um so he did i'm free we have let's hear it for the boy we have uh, bonnie tyler's um uh holding out for a hero almost paradise is like you know, there's there's quite a few duets in pop history. Wouldn't you say that's got to be top five pop duet? Can you get any more '80s than than Mike Reno and um, is it Ann Wilson? Which which Wilson is it that's in that I one? I thought that dreams belong to other men. So passionate about it. He's so I mean, the line itself is just. And then you came around, tried to tie me down. I was such a clown. You had to have it your way. Did you know that Dean Pitchford basically co-wrote every single song on the soundtrack? Yeah, that's right. He did, and he he uh, he actually he also wrote the lyrics for the song "Fame." Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. He was he was a lyricist actually before he became a screenwriter, which explains why he wrote "Footloose," I guess, right? Yeah, right. So he's in. Basically, this is a guy who's into that type of a film, right? Yeah, like dancing yeah. and singing and all that stuff. So he writes Footloose and he writes all the song, co-writes a lot of the songs with Kenny Loggins. Um, pretty talented guy, I gotta say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. It is a, a very watchable movie. I think some people might not like it. Obviously, they redid it, so there's some, you know, some carryover element that people wanted to uh, wanted to show. But in the original, you know, it's got some fairly relevant elements to it. You know, it's like there's a scene where the townspeople are burning books. And yeah. that's probably pretty, re- it's pretty relevant, you know. Yeah. And the fact that, the fact, I know we kind of make fun of it. It's like the town, they don't want them to dance. But, you know, in a way, there is, especially these days, a very conservative element to the population. Uh, people are willing to go way out of bounds to keep themselves, quote, safe. And this movie sort of had that element to it. I think that's very relatable in America. Um, John Lithgow and and Diane Weist is great in it. Yeah, they're not they're not uh, caricatures. They really are real people. Yeah, like they really help sell this as a very meaningful story. And um, like I, you know, like I think it kind of gets bashed a little bit, but I think it's so unfair because I think it actually. Like, okay, maybe it's a little bit hokey and the soundtrack can be, you know, you know, whatever. But, like, um, I think the performances are outstanding. I mean, Chris Penn is really good in it. The reason why maybe it's an easy target is because uh-huh. he gets pulled over for playing Quiet Riot too loud. That's a little bit over the top. We saw them in concert, remember? Yeah, we did. That's right. We saw, I saw them at the Vibe in Austin. Yeah, on 6th Street. Everyone kept yelling out, play Come On, Feel the Noise. He was like, he was like, we're getting there, we're getting there. What they should have done is they should have just played them all first. Of course, then there'd be a trampling to get out of there. <laughs> Wait, y'all don't want to hear Condition Critical? I mean... <laughs> so there's a lot of big hits on this album. Um, what is your favorite? You know, I guess I'm an old softie. I like Almost Paradise. It's the love theme from Footloose. All right, this is going to be really obvious and generic, but I think my favorite is probably Footloose. I'm going with the original. I mean, Footloose is Footloose is a great. It's it's an excellent song. Super. So this iconic. was written by um, Kenny Loggins and Dean Pitchford. There's a great story. There, do you know the story behind the writing of this song? I do. I, I think uh, I read about like I think they were both kind of on painkillers. I think it was like what was it? Dean Pitchford was really sick, and he kind of hid that fact. 
and yeah. you know Kenny Loggins was I don't know what it, what why he was he was taking he had a broken rib broken rib that's that's right so they basically spent what like three days holed up in a room writing these songs both high on painkillers. Speaking of painkillers, you want to get to Prince? Let's do it. The other album that Footloose is facing is Purple Rain. Purple Rain also came out in 1984. As everyone knows, Purple Rain was written by Prince, starred Prince, and Prince, of course, wrote and performed the soundtrack. So just a couple things about the movie first. Have you seen the movie? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. It's mm-hmm. not an awful movie. Um, it's not it's not great. It's not great. It's not great. But it's not awful. The, the so just to kind of a little bit of background, this was his sixth studio album um, and the first with the the Full Revolution uh, as his backing band and it was released uh, mid-year 1984. Of course, the big hit off of it was When Doves Cry, but Let's Go Crazy also was a number 1. Purple Rain was a big hit. I don't think Purple Rain hit number 1. And this album went 13 times platinum. Prince did a lot of great stuff after that. I know that you're a big fan of Under the Cherry Moon. I love that uh, film. (laughs) Well, wasn't Purple Rain recorded live? Yes, it was. And so was I Would Die For You. He he does I Would Die For You, and then he goes right into Baby I'm a Star, and they were both both recorded live. And they have, there's like, there's crowd applause. And I always just, I just assumed that was added later that that was just applause that they added post uh post recording just to kind of make believe it sound it. You go to youtube you can find it it has it's a video and the song's playing and then it has words explaining what's going on like how it was recorded and all that stuff it's really cool check it out all right so that's yeah so that's purple rain so josh um who wins round five? Gosh, because they're so different. They're, they're, I know they were done in the same decade, but they're so different. They were done in the same about, year. They were done in the same year. You know, I'm going to, just for pure jo- enjoyment, I have to go for Footloos. I'm going Purple Rain, so we have another split, split decision. decision. So we have another split decision. So that's not bad, though. Out of, out of five rounds, we agreed on three of them, and on two, the other two we, we split on, but I, we, we, uh-huh. we, we agreed on three out of five, so that's not too bad. Excellent soundtracks, all of them. Man, puts you in another place in time, doesn't it? For sure. Thank you again to everybody for listening. This was a trip down memory lane and an opportunity for Josh and I to show and tell our favorite soundtracks, and we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you will catch us on our next episode. Please go subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Please go listen to us on SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook. We hope you enjoyed it, and have a great afternoon. I mean, he erected, he told it. I needed that car tomorrow night, Dad.